Well, good morning to you all, and a very happy Resurrection Sunday as well. Uh, if you're new or a visitor, and I met a number of you on the way in, uh, or if you're joining us online and this is your first time tuning in, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. And just before we jump into our, uh, our message this morning, um, I have just a piece of family business that I think is really exciting to share with you. Um, a number of weeks ago, we had uh, Ricky Steffen uh, interview for our pastor of community life, and he has accepted that job offer. So we're really excited to welcome Ricky and his wife, Michelle, to Summit Drive. Uh, he will be starting in mid-June, and uh, as well, we will be celebrating as uh, Colton and Meredith shift as they're moving to the U.S., we're going to be celebrating on May the 15th. We're going to be celebrating the, the conclusion of Harry's paid, staffed pastoring work for 26 years on that day, and we're also going to be sending off Colton and Meredith, and so I hope that you'll join us for that event as well. We're going to be having a barbecue after the second service and a great time together. Well, this week, I was put onto an article. It was published just this last week on April the 9th uh, in the Sunday Times, a British newspaper, by someone in their third third of life. It's written by the, the funny, uh, you know, quite often crass uh, Brit named Jeremy Clarkson. You might remember him from uh, Top Gear, if you ever watched that, or Clarkson's Farm. And the title of the article is simply, Jeremy Clarkson on Growing Old and His Fear of Death. It's well written. It is occasionally crass, but it helpfully gets at the malaise, the sense of discomfort or dis-ease that comes when we, especially modern Westerners, are confronted with our own mortality. Here's an example of what he writes in the article. He says, some imagine that they should spend their final years doing as much world travel as possible. They want to see new places, smell new things, and taste new fish. And I can't see the point, because all you're doing is creating memories that you'll never be able to savor. There's a similar problem with reading. You're filling your head with new things that will never be of any use. Because while you'll have the facts at hand, you won't have the mental agility to use them to form worthwhile opinions. And even if you do, who will listen? Then he finishes the article with this statement. I've got it on the screen as well so you can see. How much time do we have left? And what will we be able to do with it? Those are the questions. And why do these imponderables prey so heavily on our minds? I guess it's because we struggle to cope with hope. When we know the end is coming, that hope is replaced by despair. And somehow that's just always easier. I think he's got a point. If his base assumption is correct. See, earlier in the article, Clarkson names his assumption with almost an utter sense of certainty. He says this. He puts it this way. I know I'm going to be in a hole where I shall rot. And I shall be there forever, or at least until a property developer decides he needs the graveyard for a new housing estate. Then I'll be landfill. But this is an enormous assumption that he's making. It's actually a faith position. He's holding on to it, and yet he gives no good reason for doing so. And that's an assumption that this day 
Resurrection Sunday, it challenges it. It questions that assumption. Because what if there is a reason to hope? What if the memories that we form and the things that we learn and the things that we give ourselves to doing, even in our later years, what if they actually do carry on past the grave? I will say, I, could, I can appreciate Clarkson's article. I love the candor with which he writes. He really does name the things that are real fears for us in our moment. So let's just take a closer look at this day. Now, I'm going to do something that I have never done in a sermon before. I'm going to do something that I've never even seen someone attempt to do in a sermon before. Honestly, I've never seen this. No, it's not a backflip. Um, it might actually be harder than a backflip. We're going to look at the story of Jesus' resurrection from the Gospel of Mark. And if you're unfamiliar, the Gospel is a biography of Jesus' life. There's four of them in the Bible. And you might be wondering, why is that so challenging? Well, as you'll see in a moment, the way that Mark records his story, it's challenging because it doesn't give us what we're looking for. We want a tied-in-a-bow version of the resurrection story with all the ambiguity erased. That's not what Mark gives us. He gives us something else, something that we really need. See, in Mark's account, we won't just be asking the question, what happened that first resurrection morning? And that's a deadly important question, pun fully intended. But the other Gospels, they, they rightly, helpfully answer that one. But Mark asks the question on, on a slant. His question is more along the lines of, what is happening? So ready? Well, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to start anyways. But let's pray before we do. Let's pray. God, we are thankful to be gathered here today. The reality that on a Sunday morning, a group of people, not only here, but groups of people, large groups of people all around the world right now, this morning, we gather week in and week out to celebrate the reality of the new creation, that a new day has dawned. And I ask, Father, we ask that what you inspired Mark to write down through the Holy Spirit's work in him, that it would come alive to us and that there might be a fresh hope that we are filled with today. For your glory and our joy, we pray these things. Amen. Now, as, as, as we move into our section in Mark's gospel, we just need to step back a little bit to get the bigger picture. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me. And I'm just going to read a little bit from Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 33. It will be on the screen as well. Mark tells us that on the day that Jesus is executed, that at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Photographers, cinematographers, they speak about the values of, of light and darkness in the images they capture. The element of darkness often generates a sense of, of heaviness or even suggests a kind of blindness or disorientation. And it certainly does in this text, in this place. So this moment, Mark tells us, is cloaked in a strange darkness. And Mark needs us to know it. Not only the physical reality of darkness, but the spiritual reality that's with it. You see, in that place of physical darkness, Jesus cries out from perhaps the deepest kind of darkness. He says, borrowing the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just a few lines later, we read that Jesus let out a great cry and breathed his last. 
Christianity, you see, is the only religion that says that God suffers. That God cries out in anguish. And I think it's important for us because when we suffer, we might be completely in the dark about the reasons for it. A sense of blindness as to the why. I certainly have been. On, on March 8th, 2009, it was a bright and sunny day outside. Some snow had fallen, and I watched my dad breathe his last breath. And, and it's a strange feeling in the middle of a bright, beautiful day like that to also have this sense of darkness that kind of swirls in on you. The darkness of, of not knowing. The, why so young? Why him? And is it true? Is he really in the presence of God right now? And that's not the last time that I felt that sort of darkness and ambiguity either. Many of you can relate to that. Here's what we need to see. Even, even if we never know the reason for our suffering, this side of eternity, what Jesus is doing on the cross, it tells us what it can't mean. It can't mean that God doesn't love us. For you see, Jesus here on the cross is taking the evil of the world into his own body. The evil that I have been party to, he takes it into his heart and lets it crush him. Why? Out of love for me and for you. Our suffering, our experience of, of the dark doesn't mean that God doesn't care. And as Tim Keller helpfully puts it, he says, the only darkness that could have destroyed us forever, forever fell into his heart. This tells us that Though we may still experience darkness in one sense, the not knowing why, ultimately the light of God's love will have the last word. But our question today then is how could we trust that? How could we know that hope? How do we move from our fear of the dark, the dark of death, the dark of not knowing why? Well, it's only by what comes next. The next verses describe these three women. These have been uh, faithful followers of Jesus throughout his ministry, and they're watching Jesus die from a distance. This is Mark 10, 15, 40. Among them, Mark says, were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. Then we read that there's this kind man, Joseph of Arimathea. He goes to Pilate and he says, can I have the body of Jesus so that I can give him a proper burial? And he takes his body and he wraps it in a linen cloth and then we read that he puts him in a tomb and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where they laid him. And now let's look at our story for this morning. Mark 16, starting at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Notice, the first day of the week. That's creation language and that matters as we'll see later. Notice too, after sunrise, the darkness of the last scene is being contrasted with the, the brightness of this new day, the light that is coming. And notice more. Notice the redundancy. In just eight lines of text, we've seen these three women named three times. Why? Oxford historian and biblical scholar Richard Bauckham, I think he's right. He, he says that this is Mark's way of telling us this is not a legend. This is not a made-up story that we might find interesting or comforting, but it is a real-time and in-space historical event. 
Bauckham says that the repetition of their names are source citations. These are ancient footnotes. See, these women were certain, almost certainly still alive at the time that Mark writes this gospel. By including their names and the details about which Mary they're talking about, Mark is likely saying, if you want to know more, they're still alive. You can go ask them. And so what do the women witness? Verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Pardon me, Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go. Tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Notice that line, just as he told you. If you go back through Mark's gospel... Jesus repeats himself many times, starting after chapter 8. Jesus will say, I will die, but then on the third day, I will rise again. I will rise again. I will rise again. He keeps repeating it. It's interesting that the angel even has to say this. It's interesting that none of the male disciples who heard Jesus make this claim, none of them show up. We don't see a single one who says, hey, remember when Jesus said, I will rise? On the third day, maybe we should just go and check at the tomb. None of them are there. Why? Why aren't they there? Even though Jesus had promised it, even though he had repeated it, they don't believe that a resurrection like this could happen. They have no category for it. That should help us, modern, western, skeptical folks, who maybe think, you know, ancient people would find this easy to believe, but, you know, we're we're smarter than that. This should help us to go, no, Even though Jesus promised it, the male disciples, they aren't there. They're not checking the tomb. And the women, they go expecting a corpse. They struggled with this, but for different reasons than us. See, the Jewish view of the world uh, says that the resurrection will happen, but it'll be at the end of history, and it will be all people raised at the same time. So there's no category within their view of the world for a single resurrection in the middle of history. And this is key to know. On either side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there are many, many messianic movements. After the leader dies, the followers pack up. They go home. It's the end of the movement. We have good historical record. Every single time a messianic movement starts up, it dies off when the leader dies. Why not here? Why does this movement keep spreading and spreading? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense unless you grant that a miracle happened that day. See, the only solid explanation, if you grant the possibility of at least one miracle in history, well, it's that the resurrection really did take place. That as we read in the Gospels, as we read in 1 Corinthians, that hundreds of people over the next 40 days really did see Jesus rise from the dead. That's what could account for Jewish folks like this completely changing their worldview and beginning to follow and worship this Jesus who is Messiah. More, a legend in the ancient world would never have included women as the first witnesses. Women weren't allowed to bear witness in court. So the fact that they are named 
basically reduces the credibility of this report in the ancient world to basically zero. You wouldn't make up a story trying to convince people of the facts of it and have women as the first witnesses. The only reason Mark would tell it this way is it, it was what actually happened in history, and he felt bound to tell the truth. So now, how do the women respond? Verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Trembling and bewildered, fled from the tomb, said nothing, were afraid. They go expecting. They're expecting a stone. They're expecting a body. And there is no body. There is only a glaring absence. Well, there is the presence too. The presence of a, a young man we read dressed in a white robe. In their alarm, they are met with the message, do not be alarmed. Which when you think of it, it's kind of a funny thing to say. Like there's a lot to be alarmed about here, guy. Uh, and just try to put yourself in their place for a moment. I did this week. And, and, and that fear, I think, is totally understandable. This is completely disorienting. This is not what they were expecting. And into their shock, the angel reveals, speaks a word, interprets the meaning of what they're seeing, or better, what they're not seeing. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Notice, by naming Jesus the Nazarene, the angel assures them and us, they're not at the wrong tomb. He continues, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They are told to take this message to others, which is an interesting thing for Mark's gospel. If you're familiar with that gospel, you'll find that every time Jesus does a miracle, when he heals somebody, do you know what he says? Don't tell anyone. In, in Mark's gospel, scholars call it the messianic secret. Don't tell anyone. Go tell the priest. That's it. Don't share this. And people go out and they begin spreading the message. And here's the one place, the first place in Mark's gospel that someone is told to go and tell. What do they do with it? With this divine command, it says, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. There's this rich or thick, thick's a better word, irony in this moment. And then... That's it. That's the end of the gospel of Mark. What kind of ending is that? Why on earth does Mark end his gospel with women in fear, trembling and bewildered? It's like he intentionally leaves us sitting with the question mark of, well, what's next? Unlike Matthew and Luke and John, Mark does not record any post-resurrection encounters. Now, you might look at your Bible and say, well, wait, Dave, look at this. Hang on. Mark does have more verses. Let's, well, let's talk about that for a moment. You will see a note in your Bible. If it's a modern translation, it'll have a note that says this. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. Then basically all modern translations will include those words of verses 9 to 20 in italics. That's to signal that these, we are confident, were not from Mark. And I know that raises a whole lot of other questions. So let's just take a moment and I'm going to address those. So that we can really appreciate what we have here. See, God is speaking through Mark's telling of this story. This is the Spirit of God who has worked to shape the story in this way. 
And so we need to appreciate it for what it is. And so let's dig into this for just a moment. First, we need to know that we don't have any of the original autographs from the New Testament, meaning Mark's pen on paper writing. We don't have those documents. We have thousands and thousands of copies, more than any other ancient document, by heaps and bounds. And when you compare those ancient documents, there are very, very little differences between them. And all of the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel end at verse 8. All of the ancient witnesses that also cite the end of Mark's gospel end at verse 8. So second, there's another fair question that this raises. Why these additional verses in the manuscripts? Later manuscripts. Well, most likely there's some later scribes, and they are compiling excerpts from the ends of the other Gospels. You can actually kind of trace those through. And, and I think it's probably, I mean, these are very real people, and they are probably trying to get their heads around why such an abrupt ending as this. Like the other three Gospels, they give us the appearances to the disciples. They give us the commissioning. They, they give us a satisfying ending. And so these scribes, they per perhaps thought that Mark's Gospel, maybe the end of it had been lost. And so the so-called longer ending was maybe more satisfying, and they, and, they, and they added it. They borrowed from the other gospel writers. Um, I think what they create is something, helpfully, what J.B. Phillips calls an ancient appendix. And we know that Mark hasn't written this for a few really good reasons. Number one, the word choices, the grammar that's used, and even the big ideas and themes, none of these line up with the rest of Mark's gospel. So third... Why would Mark end like this? Mark, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is a brilliant, masterful storyteller. He has made a choice under the guidance of the Spirit to communicate this message in this way. See, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world to leave gaps in a story to make a point to get your mind thinking through it. That's not unlike the way parables are told. They don't tie things up in a nice, tidy bow. Jesus himself teaches with gaps where you have to dig in and think through it. For example, the Greek literary stylist, Demetrius, he's writing probably in the third century before the Common Era or BC. He says this, some things seem to be more significant when not expressed, and those omissions will make an expression more forcible. See, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, there is a major theme, and that is the theme of incomprehensibility. Jesus' first followers, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, they don't get it. They don't understand why, why Jesus was going to have to die. Like, how can victory come through death? And so this incomprehension, it's all throughout the Gospel. So ending the Gospel on this note is actually in line with the rest of Mark's story and the way he tells it. Think of it, when, when we see that Jesus acts or speaks in powerful ways in Mark's gospel, it's almost always fear and confusion that resu results. There's this time when Jesus calms the storm. They're out in a boat with his disciples. He speaks to the storm and they calm down. And you know what they say? Wow, Jesus, thank you for saving our lives. Except they don't. Mark says... They were terrified. That's their response to the mighty works of God. When Jesus casts out impure spirits in just the next scene, out of the man in Gerasenes, 
the man, he's now calm. He's in his right mind. He's sitting there like eating some toast. I don't know. But the townspeople, when they see this, it says they were afraid. That is the common response in Mark's gospel of people to the mighty works of Jesus. It's the same in this resurrection story. Cambridge scholar Morna Hooker, she says, Mark's abrupt ending follows the pattern that Mark has used all through his telling of the Jesus story, which is to leave his readers to make the crucial step of faith for themselves without presenting them with less ambiguous evidence for the resurrection. Basically, Mark tells the story and then turns the question on us, says, what about you? What will you do with the announcement that he has been risen from the dead? What will you do? He puts it back on us. And that's the question that each of you and I need to wrestle with today as well. Jeremy Clarkson, remember, he said, this is the question. He says, how much time do we have left and what will we be able to do with it? Mark says, no, that's not actually the question. The real question is, who is Jesus and what will you do with the news that he is alive? That's the question. Because everything is riding on this. Your true identity, your hope for the future, the meaning of your work right here and now. Look, there are good, solid reasons to intellectually believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It makes better sense, reasonably, than any other alternate explanation for the beginning of the Christian faith in the ancient world. And historians know it. Find one. Press them on it. They will tell you this is really hard to understand, except that Jesus was raised from the dead. And yet... And yet the first readers of Mark's gospel, they're in Rome, it's the middle of the first century, and at the end of the day, they're going to have to make a decision about whether or not they will believe this news. Because, and we will too, because we, like those folks in Rome, we are not going to get to see the resurrected Jesus with our own eyes. The women in Mark's telling, they're told to go and announce this news without any other proof. And that matters. They are going to have to choose to respond in faith to this word, and so are you, and so am I. As we see all throughout the scriptures as well, belief is not only a mental, cognitive assent to the facts of history. It is that. includes it. But we're called actually just to put our whole weight, our whole lives onto this reality. It's allowing our identity, our core sense of, of self, who we are our purpose in life, in what we're aiming our lives at. It allows that to be transformed, to be reshaped around a different story and then invested in a new way of life. I think, unlike Jeremy Clarkson, that there is a reason to hope and not despair. I think there's a reason to get up in the morning, to put my socks on and then get to work for justice and peace in the world, to announce that death doesn't have the last word, and then to let it show by the way I treat God's good creation and the way I treat God's image-bearing creatures, other human beings. I don't think there is a moment that is wasted or a beauty that is wasted if the resurrection happened. And let's just see four ways that this speaks to us today. First, if Jesus was raised from the dead, it means the whole story of Mark up to this point is true. Every claim Jesus makes about himself, every claim he makes about spiritual realities, it just is. So when you get to the end of that gospel and you see the women trembling and afraid, 
and you ask yourself, what do I believe about this story? It sends you back to the beginning, and you start reading Mark again and going, that's true, and that's true, and that's, that's what it would mean. And that will change everything about your life. Number one, it will change because it means that Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins, like he said in Mark 2. It means the weight of the guilt that I carry, I can be freed of it, forgiven for it. We're given a fresh start with God. I need this. You need this. Number two, it means that his promise of life eternal is wide open to anyone who puts our trust in him. Uh, Biblical scholar, theologian Michael Byrd, he says it well. He says, in an age when most people ebb between the fear of death and the futility of life, and we saw both of those in Clarkson's article, the cornerstone of Christian hope is the future resurrection of believers. Christian hope is not a placebo in the face of certain death, no, but it has real substance and is confirmed by Christ's own resurrection as the prototype of what will happen to us because Jesus was raised. If I put myself in him, trust in him, I too will be raised. When you take your final breath, and until you take your final breath, all of that is infused and imbued with meaning. It means that everything you do now, the things you give yourself to, will be brought into God's good future, the renewal of his world. Third, it means our fears can be transformed. Maybe this is the most significant thing that that Mark's gospel in particular tells us. Let me be clear about this. Faith does not obliterate all of our fears, but I think it can transform them. That's a key element for what Mark's gospel gives us. We know that the women do eventually go and tell the disciples, right? We know it from the other gospels. We've got those and can read them. But we know also from the fact that Mark's gospel exists. They went, they told the disciples. But I think there's something very helpful and honest that Mark leaves us with here. The reality of the resurrection will change everything, but you and I are not going to experience the fullness of all of that. Not yet. Not until Jesus returns. We have to know that the people Mark is writing to in the city of Rome are, he's writing to them during the reign of Emperor Nero. If you know anything about history, there is this serious and violent, uh, serious and real violence that's being met out against Christians at that time. They are being fed to lions. They are being hung on torches and lit to light the city at night. If you claim allegiance to Jesus, that might be a very real possibility for you. Mark is writing to those folks. He's encouraging them to keep following Jesus, even when they don't know what their future is going to look like. So Mark's resurrection report is written to people in crisis. Scholar David Garland writes it like this. He says, we want the gospel to conclude on a note of victory and good cheer, but that was not Mark's situation. The ache of death is not so easily assuaged. Mark writes for those who will never experience Jesus' physical presence. It may seem that the gospel ends on a pessimistic note then, because Mark doesn't tell us how the women fulfill their, their ministry, how they overcome their fear. But the gospel actually is not about feel, fear or failure. It's about the power of God. Ultimately, 
which overcomes and even works with our human failure and our dysfunction. (laughs) See, this says, yes, there might be failure. You, You might work with folly in what you're doing, but God. But God still works even through our fears and even through our failure. I don't know about you, but that fills me with hope. That is so encouraging to me because I know I've messed up in the past. And I'd say, what, you know, what qualifies me to stand up here and preach from God's word? Nothing but the grace of God in my life. And what qualifies me to lead into the future? Well, I know I'm going to mess things up again. And I'll need his grace there too. But this story tells us that God is working even with broken, frail, and foolish us. He still works. And four, the resurrection of Jesus means working toward the new creation, knowing that the new creation is coming. In his article, I I appreciate this part, Clarkson talks about the idea of if you own a home and some some land, of of tending that land so that, that the, to preserve the nature, to preserve, you know, the species that live and depend on it for future generations. I totally appreciated that. I love that. But he also has this fatalism built into what he says. He mentions that this is all fine and good to, you know, to tend the earth until our kids have to sell that piece of property to, to pay for us to go to an old folks' home, and a developer's just going to plow it over anyways and build more homes. So he's got like this idealism, and then he says fatalism. And, and he just moves between those two points. But the resurrection of Jesus tells me that our God-given task of tending the earth of caring for God's good creation, it is not hopeless and it is not over. We still work at what we are called to in Genesis chapter 2. The resurrection tells us that it is worth working toward the new creation that is coming, that's already breaking in. This includes creation care, yes, and serving the needs of orphans and widows. It means caring for those in need in our city and across the world. And it means announcing this hope with both Clarity, boldness, and humility. Again, Bird says, resurrection means that the curse of creation and the nexus of sin and death have been broken and will be swept aside. God's new creation is launched upon a surprised and unsuspecting world where new hopes are buoyed among oceans of terror. And the stories of Jesus' followers are billboards in the global metropolis of things soon to come. Upon the world. Here's just one example of what that means. Uh, I just read a report this week that came from a broadcaster named Igor with the Far East Broadcasting Corporation, Ukraine. Here's what he writes Bucha, Gostomel, Vosrel. After spending the day visiting these devastated cities, said Igor, I've started getting used to seeing destroyed buildings, destroyed. Apartments, tanks, broken glass, dogs running in the street. It's like we're living in a post-apocalyptic movie. People, on the other hand, have really surprised me. People have joyfully come to these cities, cleaning up and repairing the streets. Hundreds of Not sure that's a resurrection analogy, but (laughs) there are such a thing as new batteries. Anyways, (laughs) a billboard of hope. Each person who is a follower of Jesus, you get to write into the world a picture of the future hope that is coming through your actions.
For Christian people, no matter your age, if you're in the third third of life or the second third of life or in the first third of life, you are a billboard for hope. We together as the church are painting a picture for the world to see, maybe in small, but in very beautiful ways of what the new creation looks like. That's what we're up to. That's why we're sending a team to Northwest Territories this spring, to Mexico in August. It's why we connect with and are, and are looking for deeper ways to serve with mustard seed here in Kamloops. It's why we continue to, to seek creative ways to share this hope with our neighbors, the block party coming up this summer, running VBS and other kinds of youth camps. With the new energy the Spirit gives us, He is calling us to be about His business both in our personal lives and in our corporate life as a church together. That's worth giving my life to. That's worth us as a church giving our life corporately to. Because the word has come that says he is risen. The question is, will you believe it? Will you live into it? Will you let that hope shape you? And yes, we will live that even with the ambiguity Jesus, though he prays from the darkness, from Psalm 22, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to know how this psalm ends. It ends with praise, and it ends with this phrase. It says, he has done it. It's speaking of how God wins the victory, and he has. And that's what we celebrate today, the victorious one. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for the gospel of Mark. I'm going to thank you for the way that the gospel of Mark ends, that it forces us to make a decision. It says, what about you? And Lord, I, I know that there's people in this room who have said, yes, I believe the resurrection, and they've thrown themselves into what life with you looks like. I pray, God, that you would grant the Holy Spirit, give them fresh energy to keep going and creativity for what's next. God, I, there's people in this room as well, I know it, who, who have known you and walked with you in the past and today maybe are sitting with a whole lot of ambiguity. Remind them that, that the gospel teaches us to live with that ambiguity. It doesn't erase it all. It doesn't tie everything up in a neat bow. But I pray, Father, as well, that the question would come to them, what about you? What will you do now, even with the ambiguity? Lord, I thank you that you're the God of second chances, that the women run away scared, but that wasn't the end of their story. They changed directions, and so can we. And, and Father, there's people in this room who have never really put their trust in you. Maybe they've known the story, or maybe they're hearing it for the first time. God, I thank you that today there's an opportunity that we can lift our eyes and say yes to what you offer us. Forgiveness, new life, fresh hope, purpose in life. I thank you, God. And, and maybe just pray for that, that those who are here today who need just to step across that line and say, yes, I'm in Jesus. I want to pray that you would, you would awaken their hearts to this good news, that they would come to trust in you. Father, we lean on you. We depend on you. And we're so thankful that there is hope for tomorrow. Amen.